It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'd like to welcome our first guest to the show today. Suzanne Crocker is a director, a filmmaker, and also a... uh, an award-winning filmmaker. She has a. Uh, we're here to talk about her film First We Eat, and I want to get into the topic and title about that in a moment. But before that, she also came out with uh, an, another film prior to this, and um, you know, she is Suzanne. Welcome to the show. First of all, thanks, David. Happy to be here. Now, can I ask where you are located at the moment? I am in Dawson City in the Yukon. You in are. The northern part of Canada. Okay, so you sound like you're right next door. Yeah, the, the amazing ability of technology, I guess. We don't have to do this <laughs> through one of those tin cans and a string. Right. Now, the film you, you made prior to this, uh, First We Eat, is the film we're going to be talking about. Um, but the other film that you had prior to this was All the Time in the World. Now, the reason I, I mention that is because it seems like that film, and, and I'm, I'm just wondering if it kind of helped you and your family um, sort of set the, the stage for this, this, this film in terms of, uh, you know, the, all, all the, the time in the world was a, a way for you to, to move into where you are now as a temporary measure, uh, to try your, your uh, family out in that situation, um, get away from it all, sort of. And, um, and it became a permanent resident for you. And now what you did with this film, First We Eat, is you, you took the challenge to take your family um, to see if you could live for a year on just the foods that were grown, uh, you know, nothing store-bought, and, and just live on that for a, a period of a year. That's right. So in uh, all the time in the world, we took our family into the Yukon bush for nine months over the winter. And in that instance, we were living without uh, any electricity or running water or phones or internet and cooking with the wood cook stove, but we did haul in all of our own food. Mm. So First We Eat does feel a little bit like the second chapter (laughs) of of that idea of self-sufficiency. And uh, this time we know we could could live off-grid without too much difficulty, and now it was time to test out could we live here sustaining ourselves on only food from the land or food that can be grown and raised here? I'd say that was probably, you know, in, in, in hindsight, a good way to, to go about this. Because I can't imagine if you decided to take your family, do all of that at the same time, <laughs> you know, for, for nine months and then have them just eat food off the land. That would have been, that would have been a huge, huge challenge and change for all of you. Yeah, I think that would have been a bit uh, too much for my family to take all in one go. So yeah, it was it was good to spread it out for sure. And of course, when we did this challenge of eating only food local to Dawson, it it did combine food from the land with mm. food that can be grown and raised here. So mm-hmm. we are also making use of all the um, amazing family farms that are around this area. So it was a, it was a combination, really. 
And the reason why I wanted to bring in that prior uh, situation of what you did with your family, because I thought, wow, these kids are really taking this very well in terms of, you know, just wanting to live off the, off the food that has grown here for a year. They seemed very well uh, adjusted to the idea without too much, you know, hassle. I mean, you did get some pushback from, from uh, the kids, but uh, you have three kids. And, and, and so it was a really interesting um, sort of exercise for you to throw at your family to do. Um, now, I, I have to say that the first thing that came to me, two things. One, you know, the title, First We Eat, I thought, in terms of, the, of what you were taking on, uh, I would have thought that it would have been, finally we eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the title comes from a, a quote from MFK Fisher, First mm. We Eat, Then We Do Everything Else. Right. And it just highlights, I think, the importance of food as mm. one of those essential items for our survival. Mm. And, um, and so that seemed to fit really well to me because that was kind of the premise. You know, we live um, here in the Yukon, far away from the, the breadbasket of the world down south. Mm. And about 97% of our food is actually trucked in. And mm-hmm. that's from thousands and thousands of kilometers away. So when you think about being self-sufficient, um, you know, being self-sufficient for food is is right up there. And, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, you know, it's nothing, this is not a new concept, of course. No. I mean, for thousands of years, the indigenous people here ate entirely from the land. Uh, so it's obviously possible, but this is a different time period. We're a bigger population. We're no longer as nomadic. So I really wanted to test it out in in today's time to see if we could combine all the ingenuity and resources around here and and still make it happen. And I really appreciate you saying that because that was part of the other thing I wanted to mention when I saw this this uh, this film was I thought, hmm, Yes, it's not a new concept, and I thought, what makes this so different than, you know, perhaps going into an indigenous community that have been living off the land for thousands of years, just like you said, and, and you know, observing them and, and seeing what they're doing. So I really do appreciate what you just said about that, so thank you. Um, now, the reason why, going back to the title, and when I said first, you know, first we eat, and I thought it would be finally we eat, is because of the challenge of what you have, you put for yourself on the platter, you might say, uh, because it, it, because to live off the land, to prepare the food, as we saw a lot, and I don't have to tell you this, you, you lived it, uh, the preparation, the amount of time it takes to, you spend most of your time gathering the food, preparing the food, and finally you get to eat after all that and storing the food, all that stuff that you guys did, uh, really showed the amount of work that is necessary to just sustain yourself to be able to put that food on the on the on the plate for the family you know three times a day yeah it does make you very connected with your food when you go through all those steps for sure uh, which is actually kind of an amazing thing because mm. i think when you're that connected with every ingredient you really value it you really appreciate it and you really learn to respect where it came from and whether that be you know the hard work of the the farmers who grew it or 
this amazing earth that we live on that can produce this bounty of food without us thinking at all about seed saving and fertilizing and and all those other agriculture concepts. So yeah, it, it, it definitely makes you very connected with your food when you go from the very start to putting each bite in your mouth. And I, I think that's in, important. I mean, it's not obviously feasible for all of us to, to do that from start to finish, but I think the more we can understand where our food comes from, um, the more we, we value it. I know I, I certainly hold farmers up on a pedestal. Mm. I hold uh, our Trondequitchen elders with their traditional knowledge up on a pedestal. And I think that those knowledge holders are really, really key. And, and certainly now during this pandemic, it seems to become even more clear that uh, when a crisis hits, it's what we have in our own community is is what we we have, and we can't necessarily rely on infrastructure or things that have to come from far away or across borders. So those community knowledge holders are really, I think, our greatest resource. Mm. Now, aside from uh, your, your being a filmmaker, I believe you and your husband were both school teachers. We are actually both family doctors. Oh, family doctors. That's it. Correct. Um, and and where were you practicing prior to moving north? Well, we um, we actually have lived here in Dawson City for quite a while, mm. pushing thirty years for me, oh, and my wow. husband for a bit a bit longer. So okay. the majority of our our doctoring career has been in Dawson. And then during all the time, well, the film All the Time in the World was about a time in our life when our kids were much younger, when we felt we had to get away from it all in Mm. Dawson City and uh, (laughs) and go into the bush for that year and get out on the land. Uh, So that's what what we did. But um, yeah, so we were family doctors here for many, many years, uh, both retired now. Hmm. I have to laugh when you said we had to get away from it all in Dawson City. It reminds me of when I was sent up north to Nunavut with APTN when I was working for them. And I was in this little little village town, it's not even a town, but 400 people, Akviat. And I was sent there to do some stories. And at the end of the week, I was trying to find the person that I was there to, to uh, it was an election, I was trying to find him. And and um, and he had gone out on the land and uh, to do some hunting or whatever. But but during that that time that I was there, I heard this from from the people in the community. Oh, they're going, you know, they're trying, they want to get away from it all and go out on the land. And I went, they want to get away from it all. And I thought, yeah, you know, well, you never know where you. It doesn't matter where you are. People still want to get away from where they are. Now, yeah, that that's it. Yeah, you can be distracted, uh, you know, by work and computer mm. and projects no matter where you are I guess and and yeah lots of people try and get away from it all by moving to Dawson and then I guess Mm. if it's still too too hectic then you go to the bush yeah now speaking of Dawson I I have to admit I had never seen really good pictures of Dawson prior to this Dawson City and I'm surprised it's called a city when it's like about 1500 people that live there yeah that's right it's it's a bit of a misnomer but you know at the in eight 
you know, the turn of this, the previous century, like 1898 gold rush, it actually became a community of, of 30,000 people, mm. believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, this is the traditional territory of the Trondequichin mm. and um, the gold rush changed that for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, it has, has, you know, gradually over those hundred years come back into its own. And now we are a community of 1,500 people. And it's, it's really actually, I think, an amazing um, example of a community where both the Trondequichin and the non-Indigenous people who live here have this long shared history of, of working and living together. Mm. Um, now, Dawson City, is it about 300 miles south of the Arctic Circle? Is that? About 300 kilometers south as the crow flies. Yeah. Mm. yeah. As uh, the raven flies here. <laughs> and the other thing, of course, uh, you have some beautiful shots in, in the documentary, some great uh, you know, uh, drone shots, I'm, I'm guessing is what they were. Uh, it's in such a beautiful location. Yeah, the Yukon is just a really beautiful part of the country. We're a, a land of of hills, mountains, and rivers, really, mm-hmm. and uh, and lots of wilderness. You know, I think our area is larger than the state of California, and we have mm-hmm. about forty five thousand people in total, of which probably thirty five thousand of them live in the capital city, Whitehorse. So Dawson, which is as you mentioned, fifteen hundred people, is actually the second largest community in the Yukon, mm. and uh, we actually have more moose than people. <laughs> that's great. Good. I believe that's a good thing. Yes, that's a very good thing. The location of Dawson City, uh, as you point out in the video, it's it's where two rivers combine. That's right. We're right at the confluence of the Klondike River and the Yukon River. Uh, we are literally at the end of the road. Mm. If you want to go any further, you have to uh, cross the Yukon River by ferry, and then you can take the Top of the World Highway for another 100 kilometers or so, and you get to the border with Alaska. Mm. And we're about 550 kilometers from the capital, Whitehorse. Mm. So I always like to say, you know, the 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 closest chain store is 550 kilometers <laughs> away, which is also just how we like to keep it. <laughs> Um, yeah, you just mentioned something about the river, and I, I do remember what I was, I was going to ask you about, and, and that is how long the summer lasts in, in the Yukon for you. Well, you know, the river, the ice broke on the river on May 3rd this year, mm-hmm. and before May 3rd, it felt like winter, and within a week or two after May 3rd, it's now summer. It, <laughs> we have a very short spring. Mm. Um, and so we will now be in summer mode until late August, early September, um, when it will definitely turn to fall. Mm-hmm. And fall is also really short, and we'll get our first snow that stays around Thanksgiving weekend in early October. So, um, yeah, some people like to say there's, there's eight or nine months of winter and then another three months of tough sledding but Mm. uh, we actually have beautiful summers here now back to moment of truth with david moses element 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 fm 
My guest is Suzanne Crocker. She is a an award-winning filmmaker, but also a retired family doctor. And her family live in uh, Dawson City, Yukon. The, the film that she is releasing, First We Eat, is a story about living off the land for one year, her and her three children and her husband uh, deciding to do that. And it really is a wonderful look, not only at uh, living off the land, but a beautiful part of Canada. Uh, I must admit, it has it spurred my interest to want to go and visit you guys. That's for sure. I, I just think it'd be a wonderful place to go and see. Now that I've now that I've seen footage of it, I had no idea, uh, as I say, about where it was nestled, what it looked like. Uh, you know, Suzanne. The other thing that I that I took away from the film. Uh, was that it wasn't just you and your family living off the land. It became a very communal thing. You, you, were, you partnered with other people. You, you partnered with, uh, with farmers. And I was really surprised that there was even people living across the river. I, I thought, wow, why would anybody be outside of this area? Um, and, and that's a, quite a fast-moving river. Yes, and it it is really interesting that a lot of our farmers uh, are living and farming on the far side of a river, upriver, downriver, uh, one farmer on an island in the middle of the river, <laughs> and many of them living and farming off-grid as well. So not only do they have the challenges of farming in the north with our, sh- our, our short but intense growing season mm. and the moose that like to invade gardens <laughs> oh. and jump fences, but mm. they also have those extra challenges of, of living off-grid and not necessarily being able to drive to their farms. Mm. Now you mentioned the summer, and of course, when you say that, uh, the summer as it as it gets further and further into the summer for you becomes something that is brighter and brighter. At some point, uh, you are without any uh, nighttime. Yeah, that's right. We're coming up soon to solstice on June twenty first, and um, this time of year, yeah, we have very little little darkness. So even though we have a short growing season. I think that, you know, the year um, that we were eating entirely local, we had 66 consecutive frost-free days only, but it is uh, light almost 24 hours a day through the growing season. So it is a short but intense growing season. And I, I feel some days in the, in the height of summer that you can almost see things grow from one day to the next. Mm. Yeah, you know, I guess that that's an interesting point. I guess things do continue because of the daylight, because of the the. And now, what about temperature? Uh, what are the temperature fluctuations like for the summertime? Well, we can get quite hot actually. Um, our average summer temperature is about twenty-five degrees Celsius, wow. but it certainly can get. Uh, hotter than that. We'll have days at 30 for sure. And then at night it will get quite cool. I mean, the, you know, this time of year, our nighttime temperatures are anywhere from minus four to plus four. Um, Mm. It'll stay above zero after the beginning of June, probably until around middle of August, if we're lucky at night. Mm. But yeah, so, so quite warm in the day and um and then cool at cool at night 
And in, in April, it's really interesting because we can have fluctuations of 40 degrees where it'll be minus 20 at night and plus 20 in the day. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, I mentioned that, that the film showed me that, that this was a very communal idea that you took on because you, you 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 sort of went to others. You you know you went to some of the indigenous people. You went to some of the other farmers to to try to uh, get some of the food that were that was being grown for you to sustain yourselves throughout the the year. Um, did, what did you learn from this process aside from the difficulty and and those kind of things? What what did you take away from this experience? Well, you've heard the expression, it takes a, a community to raise a family. Mm -hmm. It also takes a community to feed a family in mm -hmm. this case. And um, yeah, the, um, the community knowledge holders are just such an amazing resource. Like I, I just was overwhelmed by the amount of, of knowledge in this, in this community. And not only that, just the, the ingenuity, um, you know, from the farmer's perspective, I say farmers are the the ultimate optimists. It doesn't matter what the weather brings or how much the equipment breaks down. They carry on with a smile and they find some way to dig things together and still still produce food. And uh, the Trondequichin elders who have retained traditional knowledge are so generous in sharing it. We have several... Uh, culture camps throughout the year that Trondequichin hosts for for all the youth of Dawson, not just the Trondequichin youth, but all youth. And I was really fortunate to be invited to four of those culture camps. Um, you know, first fish, first hunt, hunting caribou in October up the Dimster Highway, the fall harvest camp, and uh, moose hide tanning camp. And it is just such um, a wealth of knowledge and understanding how to use all of the animal. And, uh, and then again, of course, opening my eyes to all the edible food that's really right, right in my own yard. I remember one story where uh, Tronda Quichin elder Victor Henry took me out to show me wild rhubarb because I had heard about wild rhubarb and I didn't know what it looked like. So off we went on a drive and a hike and came back with a basket of wild rhubarb. And then I pulled up into my driveway and looked in my yard and there it was growing in my own yard. And I just hadn't <laughs> never recognized it before. So, so I had my eyes open in, in so many ways. Mm, sounds wonderful. Um, but I know it was difficult. You, you uh, show that difficulty in the film. Uh, I remember the first day uh, that you had completed and you you looked uh, pretty down uh, and and like you were you were on a on a you didn't know you really it really looked like you were unsure if you could pull this off and uh, what you had got your your family into. Yeah, that's that's very true. There was definitely a, a, a transformation for me, for sure. Um, you know, when I started this, I was really a blank page. I wasn't much of a gardener. Mm. I didn't forage except for the occasional berry. Um, I didn't really like cooking even. Mm. Mm. So the kitchen was not really my, my comfort zone. So I had a lot to learn, um, not only in the whole 
harvesting um, part of things, but also preparing things from scratch. You know, um, without those staples in your cupboard, you have to make everything. So if I want to make something and it needs butter, well, first I've got to make the butter. So those were all huge learning curves. Um, And then processing and storing food for a year, that was another learning curve. And then that anxiety about just how much food does a family with three teenagers eat in a year? Mm. I really had no clue. And I knew that I only had a limited amount of time to gather and prepare and store our food so that, you know, if we ran out of tomatoes in November, then that would be it for tomatoes. So there, the stress level was high, the learning curve was high, the workload was high. But after a while, you get into a routine and what felt like kind of an insurmountable task at the beginning started to become easier and easier. And I actually continue to um, stock our house with a year's worth of food, even since that year. Mm. And, uh, and it no longer is that huge insurmountable task. You just, you, mm. you get into a routine. Right. Understood. Now, uh, the other thing is that I, I'm wondering, you know, at the end of this, um, you also, your family was relieved. They were they wanted to go back and 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 uh, you know get into some of the foods that were readily available at the store and purchase things. It, it was interesting to see that uh, as well. Um, and and there was a look on your face when you wanted to continue this, and you saw your family, you know, taking part in in. Uh, you know, the coffee, your husband taking the coffee, and there were other things that the kids were doing. You looked a little let down or something. Like, you you thought maybe that maybe they were going to embrace this a little more and, and not maybe go back to, to so quickly to embrace that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I I was a bit surprised how ready they were to, to jump back into the grocery store, which, you know, I guess if, if I take, 10 steps back it's mm. it's pretty reasonable after uh, after that long um, to want to have some of those foods that they had been missing uh, but I guess for me like I just by that point I was so l- loving the food that mm. we had it was delicious it was fresh I loved eating seasonally and and I didn't have any desire to go back to to grocery store food at all so I had, I had certainly hoped that I would totally win my family over and they would be as transformed as I was by the experience. <laughs> but I guess that's, um, you know, that, that wasn't the reality. And in many ways, and I think for many people, convenience trumps. And um, that's just, yeah, part of the reality of life. So mm. I, I think one of the one of the solutions to getting more local food in our table will be to find ways to make it more convenient. Uh, Suzanne, there's a few things I'd like to touch on briefly, if I could, before our time's up. We're coming quickly to the end. However, one, uh, you you had an interesting uh, um, um, a side effect of this. Your blood pressure went down. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I had 
had high blood pressure for several years and had tried many lifestyle things, including going off caffeine to resolve it, and nothing had worked. So I had been on some blood pressure medication, and it was maybe... I don't know, a few months into eating local when I was able to decrease that medication and ultimately go off it. And I've been able to stay off it ever since. And I've thought as a physician why that might be. Uh, The caffeine was one thought. But Mm. as I mentioned, when I tried going off caffeine before, it hadn't done the trick. Mm. Um, I thought that maybe not having the all that uh, salt in our diet because mm. we had no salt source mm-hmm. uh, also might have been part of it. But in talking to some physician colleagues since, I think one of it might one of the reasons might have been this concept of the microbiome, which has to do with the natural flora in our guts. And there is a, uh. a theory that um, by eating more healthy, less processed foods, that flora in our guts goes back to how it is meant to be and that contributes to um, a lot of our overall health. So mm. I'm wondering if that was maybe actually the, the reason. So it's been a good incentive actually to keep eating right. mostly local. Right. So you continue to do that. Yeah. So I would say that I eat, still eat about 95% local. My family, well, probably 75%. Right. And, and how have they, uh, what do you think your family took away from this experience? Well, I, I definitely think they gained uh, a new appreciation for where their food comes from. Mm. Um, my, my kids this summer, you know, their usual summer jobs don't exist. So there's um, out helping farmers plant in fields. Um, I know that there was an appreciation for the, the work that the farmers do and for the amazing taste of the fresh local produce. Um, my youngest daughter, she really learned to forage with me. So now when she takes the dog for a walk through the woods. She's snacking on whatever's around. So that's, that's pretty cool. So they, they definitely did, did take things away. My husband learned to ice fish for burbot during that year, and he yep. continues to do that every year. So burbot has become one of the staples in our diet. And he did um, hunt moose before that year and continues to, to hunt since moose being probably the biggest staple of our diet up here. Yeah, you mentioned uh, those two things. Burbot, is that the, the fish we saw in the, in the pictures that they were, they were pulling in? Yeah, that's the fish that you, you ice, f- well, yeah. that's the fish that you ice fish for in the winter. Okay. So in the film, you would have seen uh, king salmon being yeah. pulled in through yeah. the nets. Yeah, so that's king salmon. And then in the middle of winter, that's when you can ice fish for the, the okay. burbot. Through, through the ice on the river. And burbot is that fish that I learned. Um, they, they have these huge livers, and their liver is this incredible source for vitamin D. Yes. So that was another interesting discovery that I actually didn't – I mean, I, I decided not to take any vitamin D supplements that year mm. just to mm. see what would happen. And my vitamin D went down in the winter, as one would expect. And mm. then when I started to eat burbot liver, it went right back to normal. So wow. just goes to show, you know, when you – eat all parts of the animal, um, I think you, you tend to get the nutrition that you need. Right. 
Um, now, uh, you mentioned the moose, and uh, there was a point in the film where there was they weren't, weren't sure if you, if you were going to get that moose. And I thought it was really interesting that uh, when that moose uh, made itself, uh, sort of he was almost giving up on that, and then he said it was, it was almost like it was an offering. And I thought, isn't that an interesting choice of words, whether that was deliberate or not? Because, of course, uh, that's exactly the kind of thing you would hear from an Indigenous perspective, that, that it is an offering, that, that you pay respect to that animal uh, for offering their life for you. Yes, and I think that's how we felt about all of our food for that mm-hmm. year, which, again, I think just goes back to having that strong connection to where our food comes from. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely a feeling of of thanks uh, for for everything, you know, for the the fish that came out of the river, for the moose, for um, the animals that were raised that were harvested, uh, for the food that came out of the ground. Right, yeah, Suzanne. For sure. We only have a couple of minutes left, so first I want to mention a couple of things. One is the dance at the end of the film is great. <laughs> Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I mean, one wouldn't expect bonger dancing at the end of a Yukon film, but it's actually a farmer's dance, which is why I had the idea to to do it with all the farmers in the community. So yeah, it was super fun. And I have to admit, I wouldn't have expected uh, someone of of that lineage to be there. (laughs) Yeah, Gurdip is is a Yukoner and, uh, and one of his pastimes and is to teach bhangra to people so we were happy to learn and that made sense at the beginning of the film when you see it clipped to the front of the fridge so i was going hmm interesting uh but it was a lot of fun and 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 a great way to to end that along with the little clips at the end of everyone talking about you know when they're being introducing themselves back to food that they had taken and being a little bit disappointed don't remember what it being tastes like this or whatever but lastly let's get this in where when and where can people see the film well, if you live in Ontario, uh, you can see the film through Hot Docs Film okay. Festival, which is mm-hmm. going virtual this year. Yeah, so there will right. be a limited number of tickets to First We Eat. Watch it from the comfort of your couch, and they will be streamed until June 6. And if you're not in Ontario, you're out of luck at the moment. And if you're not lucky enough to get a ticket at Hot Docs, stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> COVID has kind of put a, a wrench in the usual mm. film launch plans. So mm. um, I best I can okay. say is go to firstreet.ca and stay tuned. And as soon as it's available right. more widely, then Thank- we'll let you know. Thank you for saying that, because if you go to firstweeat.ca, uh, the website, you're going to find some recipes on there, too. You've got a list of all kinds of food that you uh, par- partook in uh, through the year and, and a lot of information there as well. And also on the website, a way to actually sign up to find out when the film will be available in your area. All right. We're going to leave it there, Suzanne. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today and uh, sharing this with us. And congratulations and all the best in the future. Thanks so much, David. Don't go away. We're going to be right back after this with more right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the show. And she is Shannon Parrott. And uh, Shannon, welcome to the show. Shannon is here to talk about something that maybe we could all use a little more of these days. We are sort of getting 
some fitness in these days. So yes, so we're going to be talking about fitness. Clearcut Fitness is the name of the organization that uh, Shannon uh, works with. And uh, I saw a great video online that they have. You can go and check them out online at uh, Clearcut. Uh, fitness.com and you can see the video you can find out more really uh, they, they sort of uh, feature one-on-one kind of training with with their clients and you know really that's a, a great way to approach any fitness because we are all unique people we all have certain challenges our bodies are all different there might be different things that you're looking to do whether it's uh, to build muscle or maybe to lose fat or you know just general around fitness plus some um, I think they, they get into some things with um with e- e- healthy eating as well, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right, Shannon? Yes, that's correct. Uh, so we do cover personal training, one-on-one training, as well as nutrition. So tell me a little bit about uh, ClearCut uh, Fitness. When did when did it all get started? So ClearCut Fitness, we expanded and incorporated a year ago in April. So we've been at our new location for a year and we've expanded to a 2,000 square foot facility on the Danforth, which is amazing. Prior to that, we've been running on a smaller facility for about three years and just slowly expanding the business and reaching out to the east end of Toronto. And one of the things that you guys, uh, you know, sort of uh, promote is that that you're sort of ahead of the curve as far as this uh, this this virus uh, how so how do you mean when you say you're 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 sort of ahead of a curve with with covid-19 for sure so it's a really unfortunate situation why we're all here and why we're able to say that but i guess we really focus on one-on-one training so one trainer one client and we don't like crowds in our gym because of that so our gym you're only ever working with one trainer and you only ever work within one area of the gym so in the front half you have four squat racks each squat rack is six feet apart from each other which means each individual client is actually nine feet from the mm. other clients that are working out at the time um, we don't overbook and it's not a public space in order to come to the gym you must be working with one of our trainers please know how many people are in the space at a time um, even our classes, we've been running classes in the past. They're private programs, so there's only four people to one trainer, and that's in an entire room that we reserve just for that. So each person still has their designated space. So it's really too bad that the future has made this a requirement for things, but we've already incorporated it, so it's mm. something that we're very used to. So once it's right for us to read, we're really excited to kind of share that with other gyms and show how we've done it in order to make people trust us and just feel safe about going back to the gym. Mm. Um, now, as I, you know, as I was mentioning in the opening there, we all, we're all different. We all want different things out of our training. Uh, you know, some people might be looking at wanting to, to burn fat, lose fat, maybe build muscle, uh, maybe just an overall program. How, how do you guys go about approaching, uh, approaching a, a client's needs? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we call ourselves a results gym. So we really focus on what your goals are, and we take a very scientific approach to all of our programs. The individuals that we hire, our trainers, are all professionally trained. Uh, build a program just for you. So during COVID, it's been so exciting to see how many people are getting into fitness, and like dumbbells are the new toilet paper right now. <laughs> so you can't get them anywhere. Everyone's really excited <laughs> about moving at home, which is so good for our industry. Mm-hmm. This is a lot of the people that are providing information online, not educated, trained. 
the good thing is they're getting people moving, which is so wonderful. Um, a lot of the clients that work with us have past injuries or they're athletes that have specific goals. You may have had a baby and have had some issues after that that we have to address. So we work with people that are very goal specific and goal oriented. And then we build a program based on that. So if you're looking to lose fat, that's going to be totally different than a woman just that gave birth three months ago, which is mm. going to be different than a soccer player who needs to rehab a knee before the season. So we make sure that we pair you with the right trainer, first and foremost, and we address your issue, we get you safe, and we work towards your goals moving forward. Now, how is one-on-one -on -one training? Now, let's, let's sort of look at this from a cost perspective. You go out, you join a gym, you're in classes, you know, you're, you're doing your aerobics or whatever it might be, uh, spinning classes, all good stuff. But how, how does that, uh, how is it different? from working with a one-on-one -on -one, uh, compared to the cost in terms of what you're getting and what you're getting out of what you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question as well. So what we look at is there's going to be, it's going to be more expensive to work one-on-one -on -one with a trainer because you're getting something specific to your goals and your needs, and you're working with a professional. There's a common saying, you get what you paid for. So there's a little bit of truth behind that. Um, and it depends on what you're going for. So we're coming into a group atmosphere where the cost is a little bit lower. There's a great aspect of teamwork there that builds you up and you've got your friend that's pushing you and it's a little bit more competitive, which is amazing. And then on the flip side, if you have a more specific goal or you need to fix an injury or you need to make sure you don't get injured in your future, you want to make sure that you're working with the right individual and spending a bit more of a commitment there, whether that's a financial commitment, time commitment, it's just committing to that goal. That being said, it's a really common saying that you're going to get to those goals three times faster and 80% better working with a trainer or a one on aspect versus a YouTube video or a boot camp gym, which is not tailored to your specific goal. That's not to say that those aren't fantastic options. They're an alternative, so it really depends on what you're going for. How does a trainer, when they first meet with a client, because not only are what we're going after and our needs and what our wants are from uh, you know, what we want from our physical workout, but our bodies are different. I mean, we're just structured differently. Some bodies are broader, some are thinner, some are taller, et cetera, et cetera. How does, how does a trainer look at someone's physical appearance and, 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 and say, okay, this is a certain, you know, perhaps a body type that, you know, uh, we can do this and here's what I'm going to need to help with this person on, uh, you know, in order to do the things that they want to do. Is that making some sense? Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the advantages of working one-on-one -on -one is if you're working with a qualified and a good trainer, I'm going to stress that, is they're going to put you through an assessment. So at ClearCut, we have very specific assessments. So when someone comes in and they're interested in working with ourselves or a trainer or just in the general industry of personal training, you should get a physical assessment as well as a lifestyle assessment. So your trainer is going to look at you and we're going to see how you move just through some basic what we call our primal movements. So it's going to show how do you sit and stand, how do you bend, how do you pick something up, push something, pull something. Mm. And through these really basic assessments, we're going to see certain muscles in your body that might be really tight and mm. certain 
muscles in your body that are going to be what we would consider more loose. So most famous example is when we see a desk worker come into the gym. Desk workers tend to have really sore backs. Their hips are really tight because you're sitting all day long. So it makes those hips super short. And these pull on different aspects of your body. Then there's the famous posture, right? We're sitting at our desk, we're typing, we're forward. That causes neck pain, that causes stress, that also encourages back pain. So we're going to look at these certain muscles and we're going to know after an assessment that, oh, okay, these muscles need to be tightened, but these ones actually need to be stretched out a little bit more. And the first part of your training is going to be getting your body ready to move safely in the gym. And then you can take that information and you can take it to your boot camp gyms. You can take it to your YouTube videos, your at-home workouts, because you'll know, hey, jumping isn't a good option for me yet until I finish these exercises. I can do it in So when you're on your YouTube video and you see 20 jump squats, you know, hey, maybe I should slow this down and just do a bodyweight squat. But without that assessment, you might not know that. And that's Mm -hmm. where you might get yourself in a little bit more pain down the road. Right. Um, And then what we do is we have to look at your lifestyle. So we're going to talk a little bit about your history. Is there stuff in your family history? Um, Things that you've gone through in the past, as well as your eating, your sleeping habits. And that way you can build a program that's actually going to work with you. Because if you're a new mom and you're working from home during COVID, a program that has you working out five days a week, measuring all your food, taking a tablespoon of that, it's not going to be successful for you. So that's why we avoid cookie cutter program and tailor it towards you. All right. Just going to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country on the Radio Player Canada app. It's a pleasure to have with us on the show uh, Shannon Parrott, and she is with the Clear Cut Fitness Organization, and she is uh, one of the trainers there. She's, uh, they're just telling us about how they work one-on-one with their clients, and uh, it's, it's a great way for people to find out more, one, I guess, about their bodies, uh, and, uh, and also about what it is that they specifically might need out of a workout if you uh, more than what you're getting in say a group class uh shannon as you were talking i was i was thinking that a lot of what you're you're talking about and you had been also talking about working with uh say a soccer player that you mentioned that might be coming back uh wanting to get a knee in shape uh before the season starts it sounds almost uh and somewhat like physiotherapy to some degree as well so, yeah, that's. I want to first clarify we are not physiotherapists, and mm-hmm. no error unless they've been in school is within the scope of practice to diagnose pain. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that we can't alleviate pain mm-hmm. and help you better. Um, at ClearCut Fitness, we actually work with a physiotherapist, so a mm-hmm. lot of our clients are referred to them if they need specific exercises. And we use movement as rehab, and we use exercise to strengthen you. So where our physio comes to play, they're going to diagnose the issue if it's a serious issue, and then they can prescribe certain suggestions. And from there, we have the knowledge of exercises that can help you get stronger and better and move safe free and be optimal with your goals and your body. You know, I, I, I was just wondering also that if you, you find someone that has been doing something maybe on their own for a while decides to come to work with you, but they've been doing their own workout, they've been working on their own, and they've had success, uh, you know, but they want to maybe take it to the next level. However, they haven't had any personal training up to that point. And, and what you see when you start to examine this person and look at them is that 
yeah, they've had success, but they've been they've been fortunate not to injure themselves because they've been doing it wrong and they've taught themselves the wrong way to do it. So does that then require you to uh, ha- teach them to unlearn and relearn? As you're saying that, you took the words out of my mouth. Unlearn. So that is, that is, you nailed it right there. This happens a lot and very frequently. What happens is a lot of people hit a plow. So there's, they want to take it to the next level. They're not quite there. You're not quite sure. And they're at this point where it's like, wow, I got to make sure I'm doing this right. Or they're just looking for some tips. And when people come in, they've had success, but there's a lot of movement patterns that might not be hurting you now. But in 10 years from now, they're going to pop up and they're going to pop up a little bit worse than what we would have seen them <laughs> 10 years prior to that. So that it's teaching people, again, these primal movement patterns and keeping them safe throughout those movements. Our bodies will cheat for us all of the time. I have been in this industry for about 10 years and I've worked with personal trainers for 15 years because of this. I still have a coach that watches me every time I work out because I will cheat through anything. <laughs> and what I mean by that is our bodies are going to take the path of least resistance. They're going to always favor the stronger leg if you're pushing off something. You're going to use the muscles that want to work even though they shouldn't because our bodies are trying to help us. But in the mm. long run, that is just dangerous and it does not work. <laughs> so it catches up with us many years later or it can catch up with us within a workout or the next day. So it's teaching those unlearn, learning those behaviors and showing them how to do it properly and more efficiently. Wow, that's really interesting what you just said there about our bodies wanting to take the path of least resistance and cheating on us because it wants to help us uh, to, to take the easy road. And you, good point, you probably wouldn't know that on your own unless someone is there observing what you're doing and only a personal trainer would that is there one-on-one with you most likely because I don't think in a class situation uh, you you'd necessarily notice that as much as you would with with someone that is is working with you one-on-one no that's true and it's not group classes can't provide great instruction and in how mm. when you have 30 people in an hour you can only give so much attention to each individual and you're going to see certain things come up group classes that it's just going to take too much time to correct each individual. Mm. So that's where that one-on-one attention is really helpful, even if it's just to get you started. So sometimes it's really good just to do like three sessions with someone just to be like, okay, am I doing this right? Great. And then get back to your bigger classes, your at-home workouts. What are the things that a person can do on their own prior to going in even for their their workout class or to work to see their their uh, one-on-one trainer what are the things that that people can do either at home uh, or or uh, you know just just to help in that whole process absolutely i think uh the first thing is goal setting and sometimes that takes a bit of time and you can actually need a professional to help you do that properly but just start the process of thinking about why am I doing this? Why do I need this? Why is this important to me? Start asking those whys. Because if you don't know why you're going to the gym, you're not going to last that long. If you don't know what your goal is, what are you working towards? What motivates you to keep with that? We all know, okay, we need to move. It's healthy. Our bodies need this. It's the most important thing. This body is going to carry me through life, so I need to take care of it. But you need those driving factors. So 
before you come into the gym, before you meet your trainer, your boot camp, before you sign up for a class, you need to start thinking, what are these goals? Why am I doing this? And that'll help direct, where do you start? Starting at a boot camp, do you need a trainer or is it a YouTube video? And that just helps filter it out. Hmm. Now, what about yourself and, and for a clear cut uh, plans for the future? How do you how do you see this uh, rolling out and what do you guys plan for what you want to do with with the, the fitness uh, um, in, in the future as we hopefully start to see, you know, restrictions reduced and uh, the option for people to get back and start doing their workouts? Absolutely. It is something we are so excited for. I mean, our clients are our family. I miss my family so much. Um, I just can't wait to open those doors and have everyone back in that room. But that's going to take time. And I think that's the key thing here is we're going to take our time with reopening so that everyone can kind of rebuild that trust and that we know that we're doing it the right way to protect our family. We want to make sure that when anyone comes through that gym door, they know it's safe and they know it's clean and they know it's the right place for them to be during that time. Uh, when we closed down, we had very similar procedures to what we will implement when we open. And that includes, we have a locked door, so only clients will be coming in unless it's a prearranged appointment to meet, to sign up, to do an assessment. So we know everyone who's coming in. We'll have screening protocols, typical questions that you're seeing now. Have you been out of the country? Do you have a fever? Do you have symptoms? We have our spacing of our gym, and we're actually going to double that at the beginning stage. Mm. So instead of being someone... Uh, nine feet apart, we're going to have 18 feet apart. So mm. every other squat rack will be used. Right. We're also limiting the amount of people. So if they're saying gatherings of more than 10 people, we're only going to have five because there might be an overlap of people. In other words, one trainer, one staff, plus myself. And if someone came to start their workout early, we know we're not going over those recommendations. Um, then there's the cleaning we used to do a lot of natural cleaning, but for the time being, we've ripped everything with hospital grade. We don't use reusable towels, it's paper towel. Um, all of our disinfecting, we're clean. Staff member, every trainer, wipes everything down after every client touches it as well as before. So most importantly is that our clients are seeing us clean and that you see that your equipment has been wiped down before as well as after. Plus the washrooms and the floors are disinfected every hour. Uh, floors are mopped about two to three times throughout the day. So it's a lot of cleaning right now. And then that's pretty normal regardless of COVID. It's the spacing and just reducing the traffic till things get a mm. little bit more normal. Um, other than that, we've always kept things really small. And even our classes, as I mentioned earlier, they're in a room by themselves and there's only four people and one trainer. In the meantime, those are gonna be just stuck with our virtual training until we know what they have more people in a room and we're just going to stick with our one-on-one train, one -on -one training, excuse me. And uh, the big pivot, the hot word of the year, our pivot to virtual training mm. as an option for those who aren't ready to come back to the gym. Right. Uh, I'm not sure how much you know about this. It just popped into my head as, as you were speaking there. And, 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 and that is uh, more in, in line with the food or with, you know, mm -hmm. when to use beverages like protein beverages and protein drinks. And there's so much out there uh, in terms of the choices that people can have. And, you know, when do you take them and when, you know, before or during, after workouts, all oh, of that my. kind of stuff. Uh, uh, what can you share with us on that front? 
Sure. I feel like you would need a whole segment to talk into <laughs> nutrition and watch your phone boards light up because <laughs> nutrition is probably one of the hottest topics when it comes to fitness, health, and wellness. And there's so many different schools of thought. Mm. So it really depends on a, as always, I'm going to cycle back to what are goals and two, who are you working with? What is their background? So it's really important that if someone's giving you nutrition advice, that they are certified to do so. Um, so in a nutshell, my number one that I'm going to tell people is protein. Look at your protein. Are you eating enough protein? And most importantly, after your workouts, are you giving yourself a little bit of a, what we call a recovery meal, which is going to be healthy carbs and protein to recover those muscles, help them heal, help them grow, and then kickstart that metabolism, help you lose that fat. Depending on what your goals are, that's going to depend when we eat, what we eat, how much we eat. It's that uh, we can go on forever with that. <laughs> Number one thing, protein and cut down on those sugars, fine sugars. Those are the two kind of golden nuggets that are kind of foolproof. And I like to tell all my clients. All right. Sounds good. What a great way to end uh, the conversation. Uh, Shannon, it's been a pleasure speaking with us, with, with uh, speaking with you and having you on the show. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, David. I hope everyone stays safe, stays healthy, keep moving, and we hope to see everybody back at the gym really soon. All right. Thanks again. Take care. And that is the voice of Shannon Parrott. She is uh, one of the people involved with clearcutfitness.com. You can check them out online, and uh, they're going to have their virtual stuff, uh, uh, as they, she said, planning for the future on that, as many other uh, fitness areas and other things are doing as well. It's been a pleasure having her on the show, and we'll catch you next time here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.